Kensington, Birmingham. My name is Bill. I just want to welcome you out today. Thank you for coming today. Like that song talked about, there's nothing that comes up in our lives that God can't redeem. He's always going to be with us. He's close to the brokenhearted. And I think as we start into this year, into 2018, to try to make it our best year ever, I think that's a great message to keep close to us is that God is with us. And no matter what comes our way, he is able to overcome it. Uh, This morning, we're starting our series called Crave, and I know you're going to enjoy it. First service was awesome. Uh, The next four weeks are going to be on this topic. And it's going to be a really great time. And sometimes when I get up here, I know for some of you in the crowd, uh, it's a great opportunity to check your text messages and verify your lunch plans. I totally get that. I'm not as cool as the band or cliff. Uh, but this morning, I have a few things I want to share with you about opportunities that you can jump into in the new year. See, this is what I know is that us as a church, our job is to provide some great discipleship opportunities for you to get into, especially early in the year, uh, to grow in your faith and connect with other people. And so I just want to go through a few of those. And my prayer is that, that you'll be kind of thinking, man, which one do I or my family or my small group want to jump into? Because they're all great. How many of you uh, served this year with our Thanksgiving baskets? A few of you there? All right. Uh, A great follow-up to that is our warming center that we do uh, in late January, early February. See, you may not know this, but it's a little cold outside. Oh my gosh, seriously, 12 days of under 20 degrees or more until tomorrow. Um, I don't know about you, but like I have this little mini dash hound at home and she's like, she doesn't, I don't think she's went outside in five days. Like it's that cold outside. It's freezing. So what we want to do this time of year is we want to provide an opportunity for you to be the hands and feet of Jesus to people who don't have a home right now. And so we partner with Genesis Church in Royal Oak and we need about 300 volunteers all the way from night shifts, uh, through meal prep, through hanging out with people, all of that. And we'd love for you to be a part of that. It's January 23rd, uh, 21st to February 4th. Go out on the table and connect with them. It's a great opportunity for you to serve with your family, with your small group, or with maybe people at your workplace. But don't miss warming center. Uh, the second thing coming up, if you've been a, a leader here for any amount of time, you've heard the term leadership gathering. That's our twice a year opportunity for leaders in the room. Anybody who serves leads a small group, volunteers, anything to get in a room with all the other leaders at Kensington and just get vision and worship and teaching. And this year I'm so excited. The theme is called thrive. And what we want this year is in 2018, we want this to be an opportunity where you can thrive and grow emotionally and spiritually and relationally. We got speakers from all around the country, and we want you to be there on the 19th and 20th at the Troy campus. It's a Friday night, Saturday morning. Uh, There's some great breakouts that they'll have there, but grab somebody you serve with, grab somebody in your small group. Don't come alone, bribe them with food. It's totally fine to do that. I do it all the time, Uh, but get to leadership gathering. It's going to be fun, and it's going to be a great opportunity for you on the 19th and 20th of January. And the last thing is something called Alpha. Maybe you've heard of Alpha around Kensington before. Maybe you haven't, but we want to give you a snapshot of what Alpha's all about. Life is busy. Every day we ask questions like, what's happening today? What should I wear? How am I going to fit everything in? But then there are bigger questions like, why am I here? What's my purpose? Where am I heading? Is there more to life than this? These are some of life's big questions, but there's rarely enough time to think them through. That's why Alpha exists. Alpha is a place to explore life's big questions in a safe and open environment. It's a series of sessions where anyone can share their thoughts and opinions and ask questions without feeling judged. When you come to an Alpha, you'll notice that first, there's food. Whether it's a full meal or a light snack, this is the time to get to know each other in a casual setting. Next, you'll watch an alpha talk. The talks are created to engage and spark conversation. They explore big issues around faith from a Christian perspective. After the talk is a time for discussion. This is the most essential part of any alpha. It allows everyone to share their own opinions on the ideas presented in the talks. It's a time for people with different thoughts, beliefs, and experiences to ask honest questions and have open conversation. Every week, there are guests coming for the first time to an Alpha in their community. Alpha is for everyone, regardless of background or beliefs. There's no pressure, no follow-up, and it's completely free to attend. Come and explore life's big questions. Find an Alpha near you today.
Well, lucky for you, we have an Alpha near you. It meets here at Groves High School on Wednesday nights, and Chris Perry and the team are leading it. It's a phenomenal group and community and experience. We'd love for you to check it out. You can talk to Chris out in the lobby, or you can check it out online. But don't miss Alpha this year here at Kensington, Birmingham at Groves High School. And we have one more thing for you today. Uh, I want to introduce my friend Jenny Warrens. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Many of you know Jenny. uh, She's been so awesome as our K-Kids director for years. And one of the things that's happened here at Kensington, Birmingham, you may not know this, is ever since the Dupins left, we haven't had what's called a discipleship director. And that's somebody who owns the spiritual discipleship, uh, small groups, alpha development of our people uh, for 18 months. And and just recently, uh, Jenny has agreed to become our discipleship director. Mm -hmm. And so we're really excited about that. It's going to be huge for our campus. Jenny, how long have you been on staff for? Nine and a half years. Nine and a half years. And what have you done for nine and a half years? Kensington Kids. We should send you on a cruise for that. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jenny, why, why discipleship? Uh, why now? Uh, when I think about discipleship really at its simplest form, I think that it's about becoming more like Jesus and taking the next step in your faith journey, whether that's a journey you've been on for 30 years or for just one week. And uh, for me, discipleship was really pivotal as a college student and I believe is really what transformed my relationship with God. And so uh, my hope is that I get to be a part of facilitating that at a broader level for our community. Yeah, that's great. And and honestly, working over the past few years here, uh, being a little bit newer within the past two years, you know, seeing Cliff come on in his teaching gift and, and seeing Josh and, and his worship leading and his ability to build teams, uh, I really think God's put an all-star team here with somebody of your caliber and capability leading our discipleship movement. Um, this season, January 2018, what's going on for groups here at Kensington, Birmingham? Sure. So, uh At Kensington, we believe that every person uh, should have an opportunity to grow in their relationship with God and also in community with other people. And I believe the best opportunity for that to happen is in groups. And so over uh, the next few weeks, really, today and the coming Sundays, you're going to hear about our small group community groups. You're going to hear about courses that we offer, just like Alpha. Uh, You're going to hear about our care groups. And our hope is that regardless of where you are in your journey, uh, that if you're looking for a place to grow in your relationship with God or or just to meet and connect with other people that you would take a step of faith and try a group uh, this season. And so you're going to, like I said, you'll hear more about that. You can look on the website at kensingtonchurch.org slash groups, or just come and talk to me in the lobby after the service. And and this is our kind of heads up for you to talk to your spouse, talk to your friends, talk to people in your neighborhood about the group thing, because we really think, as Jenny said, that's where life transformation happens. Uh, Some of you here may be thinking now, okay, that's great. Glad you got a discipleship director, uh, but what does that mean for my kids? What does that mean for Kensington kids uh, here at Birmingham? Well, um, I I would love to let you know what God's been working in. One of our friends, uh, Anna Valentine. Anna, come on up. (laughs) So Anna has been our kids creative programmer for about two years, and she has agreed to be the new K-Kids director while still creatively programming uh, and taking kind of the leadership role uh, of K-Kids. And so we're really excited about that. And Anna, I know you have a few things going on this morning in K-Kids that you're helping Lots with. Lots of fun down there. Yeah. Lots of fun. Uh, give, me, give me a little overview of just what you're excited about in this new season with Kensington Kids. Yeah, well, first of all, um, just the staff that I get to work with, the K-Kids staff is just so incredible um, and has such a love for Jesus and just for the families that we get to serve every week. Um, And I'm so excited to be a part of creating opportunities for families at our campus to grow in their faith together and serve together um, and just to continue that in 2018. So lots of exciting things coming up this year. And I should maybe just say that um, as a parent in our community, as a mom, uh, Justin and I have three kids who are a part of Kensington Kids right now. And um, there isn't anybody that I feel more confident in, in kind of passing the torch to. And so we are just, we're so, so thrilled and so thankful um, that this is who we get to get pass it to. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, you don't know this. God's working so many great things, whether it's getting us back here to Groves, whether it's staffing with these two wonderful women or other changes. Uh, we're really excited about what 2018 holds for the Kensington Birmingham family. And one of the things this morning, maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, man, my kid's in service right now and I've never taken them to K-Kids. Well, what a great morning for that. Uh, our service today is rated PG-12. We have a, a red chair story at the end of service. 
service uh, that goes into some detail about just God's transformative power of somebody's history. Uh, and so I would just let you know that if you have a kid that's 12 or younger, it might be a great time to take them out of service into K-Kids or our wonderful breakaway middle school ministry down the hallway. Uh, that might be a good opportunity for that. So uh, why don't you go ahead and stand with me? Let's take a minute and just connect with those around us. Uh, shake hands, tell everybody how cold it is, and uh, we'll continue service in a moment. First, I never worried about second service. starting a four-week series today on this idea of cravings, of things that, that drive us, things that at times can rule us. Uh, but our desire through this series is that we would get victory and talk about how to have victory over them so that we will rule over them. In fact, I love, I love this quote by Andy Stanley. It says, our cravings can either rule us or we can rule them. And how we handle cravings will determine the direction and quality of our life and our legacy. 
So this, this takes it to kind of a different level. It's not just like, oh, it'd be great if I didn't have this thing that I crave or this issue that I had. It'd be so much better just to get rid of that. When you start to think of it in the full scope of your life and impact, there are certain sinful cravings, certain things that we shouldn't be doing, that we shouldn't be pursuing, that if we continue on that path, it can actually mess with our lives, our families, our futures, our jobs, and our legacies. And I know in this room, we've got people at all different stages of life. Some of you are just kind of starting out and are looking to the future. And maybe there's something you're battling now. You're thinking, oh, when I get married, that'll be done. Or when when I get my first job, this won't be an issue anymore. Or or when I get more mature, get a little bit older, that won't be something I battle. And others of us in the room are, are in our 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And you're thinking more about legacy. You're thinking more about decisions you've made and how you want to be remembered it's amazing to think of how cravings or this, this topic can truly mess with that. And we can end up being remembered for something we would never want because we couldn't get victory over this craving that we've never been able to truly satisfy. If you look at our culture right now, if you look at all around us, how many careers, how many legacies, guys that have been doing a certain job for decades, and now because of a craving they could not get under control, their lives, their legacies, their families, their careers are all completely wiped out and they will be remembered for their failing and not for their successes. So we want to take a few weeks as a church, and really walk through this together so that we can see victory happen. In fact, I want to give a little plug in here for Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery is an incredible ministry that we offer at Kensington. And Celebrate Recovery is for every issue that is going to be covered and unpacked over the next four weeks. We have a table, a gender-specific open share table that will directly address that issue and help you get through it. So that's a, an open invitation. We'll mention it several times over the next few weeks. But, but part of what we're going to learn today and over the next several weeks is it's not a magic switch that's flipped. This is a journey. It's a process. There are going to be moments of incredible success and great victories, mountaintop moments. Then there's going to be moments of defeat and failure. And so when we do this in community, when we do this with the help of others, it makes a huge, huge difference in actually seeing victory in these areas of struggles and cravings. But when we think about cravings, we also know that this is not just something that's, that's real simple or small. At times, cravings are deeply rooted, deeply connected into our hearts. Oftentimes, you know, th- this really became clear to me um, a couple years ago, about a year and a half ago. I was starting out, I wanted to do this big fast, and, and this was fall of 2016, and it was day one of this fast. And I kind of just went cold turkey, there was no working its way down, and on day one, on the way home, I had a car issue, had to pull over, had to get it towed, had to go somewhere, it was freezing cold out, it was like late fall, and I remember being on the phone with Angela after, as I was getting, a, you know, getting my, finally getting home. And she's like, babe, how are you doing? She's like, how's the first day of the fast going? I was like, you know what? All I want is a burger from Red Coat, a coffee shake from Oberweiss, and just to not talk about today. That was the moment that I realized that maybe there was something deeper going on than just being hungry. That somehow that food was meeting something deeper in my heart. I just needed a little win. I needed something I could control, something I could look forward to on this day. And so cravings can be deeply connected to our hearts, to things that have happened. In fact, when you think about the language we use for hearts, it's interesting to think about that when we use the word heart, we're really talking about our truest self, our truest identity. In fact, when you read the Old Testament of the Bible, it's interesting how in the Old Testament, heart and mind are the same word. In Hebrew, which is the language most of the Old Testament was written in, Hebrew, the word lev means both mind and heart together. Only in later decades and later centuries and later years with Greco-Roman and Western intellectualism and, and, and those ideas, did they actually separate mind and heart And create two separate things. As I think of my life, how many times have I said, boy, in my mind I knew what I was supposed to do, but my heart just wanted to do its own thing. How often have I struggled in my relationship with God where I've been like, I know exactly, you know, I know all about him, but boy, my heart just feels distant from him. 
It's interesting to think about that because the mind, it really is the intellectual side of our lives, of our faith. And for the heart, the heart is the experiential. And here's what's amazing. When you think about your life and the moments and the decisions you've made, how often does the mind win over the heart? Not very often. In fact, I can tell you how many times I've sat in a coffee shop or gotten together with you in this room and and heard you say something like, I knew it was the wrong thing to do, but man, I just did it anyway. My heart wanted it and I went for it and now I'm reaping the consequences because the heart is this experiential side. That's where we, we actually build our knowledge of God comes so much, not just through what we memorize about him and store here, but how we experience him. And this is illustrated by things like we know the promises of God are things like you don't need to fear. God will protect us. God loves us. He defends us. And yet, and so we can say that we can give lip service that, but boy, in our hearts, we battle fear and we fight that. Who's going to protect me if I go to this place that's dark and I don't know. That's a perfect example of our head knowledge. We know God says there's no, no fear in love, but boy, in our heart knowledge, in our life experience, we battle fear because we're not really sure if we believe it fully. So the head and the heart. So we're going to take a deeper look into this. And so we've invited an incredible expert witness. Uh, his name is, is Dr. Jack Wilson. Many of you guys know him. He's a longtime friend of Kensington Church. Um, and so he was a professor at Oakland University for many years and a psychologist, and, and he's worked with athletes, and he's worked with many different people to really help them uh, as they dive deeper into how our minds work and helping us walk through just the, the, the psychology of our minds and of our lives. And so uh, as we watch this video right before we're actually going to receive our morning offering, if our ushers want to come forward, this is just a time in our service where we, we just take a moment to thank God and to be grateful for all that he's given to us that we get to give back to him. And I just want to take a moment to thank you, Birmingham campus, for your incredible generosity and your faithfulness in giving back to God uh, as we receive the offering. If you're visiting today, uh, please don't feel any pressure. You're our guest, and uh, please feel free to let that go by. So as the ushers receive our offering, let's watch Dr. Jack Wilson explain cravings. So, Jack, we're talking about cravings, uh, addictions in this series. How would you define that? I know you deal with this kind of stuff all the time in your own life. Sure. But no, obviously counseling people. How would you describe, define a craving that a person can't say no to? Well, a craving is both psychological and physiological. You know, and when we, uh, when we get, whether it's craving for chocolate or craving for alcohol or craving for a controlled substance, we actually have kind of a physiological change, you know, in, in the whole mind-body system. Uh, and thinking about that, you know, visualizing it, you know, you've heard me say the 24 hours a day, we're constantly talking to ourselves, both in words and in pictures. And when we have cravings, those show up as pictures in our brain. And a picture is worth what? thousand words right you know so when we picture the you know the object of our of our desire or or at some point perhaps the object of our addiction uh, then it basically overpowers the whole system uh, and makes us think about it you know, in a compulsive you can almost use compulsive and craving sort of as synonyms now how do I know or how does a person know when a craving is good and when it gets dangerous uh, whenever uh, a craving interferes with our ability to leave a normal, healthy, uh, relationship-centered life, then it's something we really ought to be giving some serious thought to. So let's say week one of this series, I struggle with your approval mm-hmm. and everybody's approval. Right. How can I test that to see if it's really determining how I feel? Okay. If you're struggling with approval, um, then you, you, there's a variety of different things that you want to do, but you want to begin having an attitude change, okay? Uh, because approval is an attitude. You know, and attitudes are incredibly powerful, okay? Uh, so if you have an attitude that I need somebody's approval, then start thinking differently, start visualizing differently. Um, but in that process, start kind of analyzing where did this come from? 
Um, you know, you know, I'm really big on on personality types and things like that. You know, and certain personality types are more likely to care about other people's attitudes. You know, so we want to start there. Uh, some people have been uh, grew up in dysfunctional families, uh, and they were not allowed to be who they really are. So they become very concerned about approval because they were trying to fake it without even knowing they were faking it because mm-hmm. that was their environment. Uh, but they've not been allowed to express who they truly are. You know, so you start thinking in, in terms of kind of a, in, the, in the existential sense, who am I? Uh, and if you grew up in a dysfunctional family that did not allow you to develop um, by trying things out, by making mistakes, by talking honestly about your emotions, um, then you're going to have to go through some of that. So much wisdom there from him and, and so much to, to unpack. And, and one of the things that really comes to mind when we think about the attitudes of our hearts and how they lead to these cravings is that there are two core needs, two core desires of every single human heart. There's two core needs of every human heart. And here they are. First one is, am I loved? And the second one is, am I significant? Am I loved and am I significant? When we think about that, in every human heart, we all desire to, be, to feel like we're loved, to feel like we're enough, to feel accepted and to be just wrapped up in that unconditional love. That is the truest desire in every single human heart. And the other desire of every human heart is, am I significant? Am I significant? Do I matter? Do I have purpose? Would I be missed if I wasn't here? Am I worthy? Do I matter? It's, it's a, these are the two biggest questions in the human heart. And the craving for approval seeks to satisfy and answer these core needs. They seek to answer these core needs. And you think about it. We take these needs then into our relationships. We take these needs into our careers. We take these needs into our friendships. We take these needs into romantic relationships. We take these needs to whoever is in our lives. We take them to our parents. And the problem is, what starts to develop is, if we take our needs for to be loved to someone and say, Am I lovable? Do you love me? Am I worthy of love? The answer that so many of us have received is, yes, but. And a conditional love is what we've been shown. In other words, when you behave, you're loved. But when you misbehave, my affection for you drops. And and when you perform, then you're loved and you matter and you have worth to me. But when you don't perform, when you fail, then you feel rejected. It's amazing how many of us, and then these, these lead to these cravings of approval. We go to somewhere else to hear that affirmation that we so deeply long to hear in our truest hearts. And if these questions aren't settled, it leads to a lifelong search for answers. In our craving for approval, we are asking people to tell us that we are accepted. This one sounds silly, but I think it's very true for a lot of our lives. Am I cool? Am I funny? Am I enough? Am I worthy? Am I beautiful? Am I important? In fact, even it even it drives our it drives our behavior even because Justin Warren's and I are are going on a trip to the Holy Lands from March first through tenth. Tomorrow's the deadline to sign up, guys. You definitely want to go with us. But one of the things we're gonna do is float in the Dead Sea. And so I'm thinking, hey, I've already lost some weight, I better keep on going. Because there's going to be a moment where I got to be in my trunks, not speedo, trunks, uh, and still with modesty. But I'm just, I'm thinking about it. It's amazing how sometimes these events and these moments drive us because of insecurities or whatever it may be. It's like, my goodness, I, I just want to fit in. I don't want to, you know, be embarrassed. I, I want to do well. So I'm going to get on the treadmill tomorrow morning at LA Fitness. And I've been a member there for a year and they still haven't met me. So it's kind of one of those things where... Uh, is it a good investment? Maybe, because it's always like, I'm going to go tomorrow, and all the paperwork has been done. So, you know, I'm just saving myself time by paying that fee for that long. But my thought is, if I go often enough, then I'm going wor- to work down the per-visit average that right now is sitting at $360 for tomorrow's visit. And then it should drop the more I go. Anyway. So I think about that. I think about, you know, that is our quest. That is our search. We're saying, we're saying am I all of these things because we're craving approval. And I think about my own life. I think about my parents who I know love me and I know 
Um, they told me every day that they were proud of me. But there's also this piece in my life where this moment where I felt like as the youngest of three, I needed to kind of stand out. And so when I did things that were exceptional, then I was given more love, more praise, more affirmation. And so if I was the best at what I did, suddenly my parents seemed to be more thrilled with me. And if I made a mistake, boy, they certainly were less thrilled with me. And, and in my, my immature heart that didn't really understand how it worked, I'm thinking they loved me less. And so in my life, am I loved? There was an asterisk there that said, if I perform, if I win, if I succeed, if I am the best. So you know how that craving for approval manifested itself? It manifested itself in a desire to only put myself in situations where I can win. It only put myself in situations where I am going to be the best. And so if I had this weird belief that I was a natural athlete or naturally smart. I don't need to study was the idea. Yeah, I'll talk to you about this later. But it's a PG-11 service. I don't know if you missed that part, baby. I'm going to say some things that the girls probably shouldn't hear. Okay, sorry. It's a family moment. So at some point, they got to go out. Okay. In fact, the next story I was going to tell, they really need to be out of here for. Okay. No pressure, but now. <laughs> I don't know how else to do it. Uh, I was tried smoke signals. I tried text messages. I tried flags. I tried those, uh, those flashlights with the orange cones at the airport. Sorry, baby. I love you. We'll work that out later. So, back to my childhood and the childhood I just scarred for my two girls. We thought our dad loved us until he sent us out in front of all these people. Here's why this is kind of interesting. I was told, you're a genius. You're so smart. I skipped second grade. You know, that was a whole other story. I've told it before. I won't tell it now because I don't have time. But here's another thing that happened. My wife, later in life, we're in student ministry together. I'm driving a 15-passenger van full of boys and girls heading up to a retreat. And something happened where someone said something about how smart someone is. And my wife believes, and I, the jury's out, that I have a photographic memory. That's, that's what she's been told and that's what she thinks. And so she was very excited to say this to the group. And so she turned around and she's like, well, kids, I don't know if you know this or not, but Cliff has a pornographic memory. <laughs> she got very quiet in the van. And I turned around and said, what she means to say is photographic. Sorry, kids. See what I mean? Okay, great. I don't want them saying that at school about their dad. We place these, we place these, these approvals, this craving for approval. It happens with our parents. For you, maybe you went to your, your job and your boss's affirmation means everything to you. You're taking that. Am I loved? Am I significant? Do I matter? And you're handing this question to the wrong people to answer. And the result of that are these cravings, these desires that cannot possibly be met. How about social media? Anyone out there care about how many people like your picture that you post? Or maybe you've got someone ultra-competitive in your family that posts one at the same time and then they're secretly checking who gets more likes. Or Facebook, why would you do this to us and put a love button? What does that even mean? You have, you have, you have 19 people that loved your picture? I'm like, man, my sister didn't love my picture. She just liked it. What's going on? I thought we were friends. So, I mean, sometimes we can take that craving for approval even to something as silly as our social media presence. We look at that and we think, and here's what's amazing. It even leaks into religion. It even leaks into our practice of our faith. So some would say there's even ways to have this craving for approval roll into what we do to appear spiritual, what we do to appear like we've got it all together so that we will hear back from people. As a pastor... This is interesting because as a pastor, you know, I've been doing this for about 17 years now in ministry and I love it. It's been great. But boy, there's this, I, I, I self-imposed this pressure that every week is going to be better than the last week. 
And so I live with that. So, so during, as the week gets closer to Sunday, I start to just feel this pressure. Nobody's doing this to me except me. And I start to feel it starts to get worse and louder and louder. And Saturday night, as I'm, as I'm finalizing my thoughts and finishing up and I'm spending time praying, I just feel this unbelievable pressure to hit a home run. A bunt single won't do. You know, like, and, and I know you guys love me for who I am. And if I got up here and didn't really crush it one day or whatever the definition is, you know, I, but I don't think you're ready for me to sit down on a stool and be like, guys, it's been a long week. I didn't even have a chance to look at my notes. Can we just talk about like God and life and stuff for a while? I'm not really, I'm just going to phone it in. You know, there's an expectation that we're going to bring our very best. This is my job. This is what we have to do. And for many of you out there, you're like, my number one fear in, in, in humanity is to speak in front of other people. So imagine that extra pressure of doing this publicly every week. But it's interesting because as pastors, if we become addicted to the affirmation, if we find ourselves craving the approval of our people and pinning our attitudes and our self-worth to the responses of people to what we've said. My goodness, can you imagine the roller coaster? You know, even as I stand by the back door and several of you are coming out, I know that for many of you, you're saying great job because what else are you going to say? Nice boots? You're not going to go, hey, it was kind of fair. It was about a four out of ten today, buddy. Like, you know, I know it's Olympic season and maybe some of you want to hold up scorecards. I'm just saying, like, you're probably not going to say that even if you think it. Like, I've walked up to people that have gotten up and publicly completely melted down to the point of, like, never doing it again. And I'm like, dude, seriously, though, you were so real up there. Like, your pain was palpable. And I've stopped. Like, we don't always say what we mean. And so if we're pinning how we feel on the affirmation of others, we're setting ourselves up to have the question answered by the wrong people. Am I significant? Am I loved? Paul even talks about this. Look at Galatians 1 verse 10. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is Paul given his whole life to Judaism, has a dramatic experience with Jesus Christ on the road to go persecute Christians. And then he totally changes gear, gives his life to serving God. And the the context of this was that people were changing the gospel to make it a little bit more palatable so people would like them more. And he's saying, man, I'm not doing this for your approval. I'm doing this for God's approval. And then this classic passage, Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's great, right? It's saying, hey, let other people see your good works. Let other people see you love Jesus, and they're going to glorify God. It's interesting, though, because one chapter later, Jesus talks about all the things we should be doing in secret. And several of them would belong on this good works list. He says, and when you pray, don't do it on the street corner for people to see you. Do it in private where your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you fast, don't distort your face and moan and groan about your hunger so people will see it. Do it in secret so your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And when you give, give so that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand's doing. So your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Was that a moment of schizophrenia? Was that a moment of contradiction in the same Sermon on the Mount that Jesus would say one thing and then the other? Or is there a deeper meaning to this? It all comes down to our motivation for why we are doing things. For instance, I really love my wife. Babe, sorry about that whole moment there. Thanks for rolling with the punches. But anyway, I love her. And, you know, I... Tell her that I love her, and I give her smooches and snuggles and all that good stuff at home. I love my little girls. I got three beautiful girls. They love to hug their daddy and get kisses from their daddy and all that stuff. When I'm in church, and I'm hoping that you'll reciprocate this in a few minutes, I'm going to give her a kiss when I see her. But you know what? It's just because I love her. I'm not kissing her for your sake. I'm not kissing her so that you'll think I'm a great husband. I'm not kissing her so you'll think I'm a great family man. I'm not kissing her so you'll think I'm a great 
lover. That sounds weird. Sorry. Um, I'm not kissing her for you. It's not for your benefit. It's for her because I love her. And my love for her spills out into public settings sometimes. So it's not for you. It's not, it's not being done so that you will see it. But it's being done before you. You see what it says there? Let your light shine before others. Not for others, but before them. In other words, you are invited to be witnesses, but I'm not doing it for your benefit. I'm doing it for her because I love her and you witness it. That's what it's saying. It's saying when you love God and you spend time praying, let your private moments be the reality of your relationship. But boy, in public, you're still going to pray. And when people see you pray, they're going to glorify God. And, and when you give, boy, most of your giving is going to be done where no one sees it. But every now and then, someone might hear of your generosity and glorify God. And when you fast, boy, most of the decisions you make when you're fasting are done in private when no one's around. But boy, people are going to start to notice you're losing weight and they're going to wonder what's going on. It's not being done for man. It's being done before man. It's not being done for man's approval. It's being done for God's approval. It's a beautiful picture of those two things, of that idea. How do we make that? In fact, it's interesting because you even think about it in our world today, you, you hear the term trophy wife or trophy husband. And you hear the story of Mariah Carey when she was married to Tommy Mottola when he was the CEO of Sony Music a long time ago. She says now, in public, he was lovey-dovey. We're on red carpets together and do all these big fancy events and we look like we we're so in love. But when I got home, I was in a prison of loneliness. Isn't that interesting? That relationship didn't last, no surprise. Because when no one was around, there was nothing there. But when everyone was around, there was something there. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't treat God like a trophy. Have a reality when no one's around. The love, the meaning and the joy and the beauty of our relationship cannot be contained. And it's not for the approval of others. It is for the approval of God. So here's the beautiful thing about this whole deal. Our core needs are fully and unconditionally met by God. Our deepest desires in our hearts that every one of us has are fully and unconditionally met by God. The first one is, am I loved? Am I loved? Look what 1 John 4, 16 says. I love this verse so much. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So we have come to know and to believe. How interesting is this? Remember when I talked about the head and the heart? The head be the storage of the intellectual, factual-based truth. That's that idea of believing, pistuo. It's, it's, it's holding on to those facts in your brain. It's believing based on facts. And then that word for know there refers to gnosko, which is a Greek word. Most of the New Testament is written in Greek. It's a Greek word that means relational, deep relational knowledge, experiential knowledge, the heart knowledge. It's saying we both believe in our minds and we've experienced with our lives the love that God has for us. And by the way, the word for love there is the Greek word agape, which means highest love, unconditional love, sacrificial love, selfless love. It's saying that know it, experience it, God's love is unconditional. Am I loved? Yes, fully. Am I significant? The second core need of our hearts, am I significant? Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. Think about that for a second. It's saying in the beginning, we're his workmanship. You've been crafted, created. Your life has been molded and formed in Jesus Christ to do good works. Meaning that there is a purpose for you. You matter. You have significance. God has handpicked you, formed you, and said, I have something for you to do to advance my kingdom on this earth. There's someone you know that no one else knows. There's a skill you have that no one else has. There's a group you're going to reach that no one else can reach. And then God stands back and says, oh my goodness. 
Look at my boy, Jimmy Pappas. Look at him. Look at him reach people. I made him to do that. I designed him to do that. He's got the heart to do that. He's got the desire to do that. Watch him go. I love him so much. Or God says, look at Susie Vanker. I've created her. I've molded her. I've put her in the family she's in and the life she's in, given her the gifts she has so that she will do something great for my kingdom that nobody else can do. And it's going to take a while, but we could do it for the entire room because God has a unique plan and purpose for each one of us. Am I significant? In the eyes of God, absolutely. You're indispensable to his kingdom. He's crafted and created you to do something unbelievable for him. Am I loved? Am I significant? God meets all our needs fully and unconditionally. And then lastly, God has promised to provide you with all that you need. He's promised to provide you with all you need. Look at the words. I got to quickly go through these last verses, but look at the words that are used to talk about our lives with God. When we rest in the fact that he meets all of our needs, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 16, 11, you make known to me the path of life in your joy or in your presence. There's fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Boy, if you pull out those words, delight, desire, heart, path, life, joy, pleasures, that sounds pretty good. It's saying in God, the God who fully meets your desire for love, the God who fully meets your desire for significance, he's saying not only that, but in relationship with him, this is what your life can look like now. Is it a guarantee of pain-free living? I sure hope not, because if it is, then we signed the wrong contract. Because many of us who love God with all our hearts have had hard seasons. But I can tell you this, without the pain I've experienced, I don't think I would understand fullness of joy. Without the loss I've experienced, I don't think that the desires of my heart would be as pronounced as God met them overwhelmingly. Nine years without children, and then he gives us three adopted children all in rapid succession. My goodness, would I have appreciated that at 24? I don't know, but I certainly appreciated it from 33 to 41. The craving for approval is only fully met. When we rest and trust in the love and relationship we have with God. What does that look like for you? What does it look like for me? As I think about, as I think about this idea, I think about grace. Because how many of us have messed up? How many of us have craved approval from someone other than God? How many of us are battling cravings that are hurting us? And we've made mistakes that have destroyed things that hurt people. And we've lost things that were precious because we couldn't say no. Here's where grace comes in. It's so hard for me and for us to understand unconditional love. Because I believe all we've ever been shown in our life is conditional love. That's not a knock on anyone in my life. It's just saying, I don't think I really get unconditional love. I really wish I did. But I love this phrase. I just want you to think about this. There's nothing you could do to make God love you more. Now, people with performance issues, as far as trying to perform for the love that you earn, you earn affection from people, from parents, from bosses, whatever. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. No matter the failure, no matter the falling, no matter the brokenness, no matter the pain, no matter the mistakes you've made, there's nothing you could do to get more love from God. There's nothing you could do to get less love from God. He loves you fully because love is his nature. It's who he is. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Because that's who God is. He's love. I pray that today you would believe and you would know that the approval that we deeply crave above everything else is the approval that is ours in God through Jesus. We rest in that. We live through that. 
And our lives will be different. Our lives will be better. Our lives will be amazing. We're about to watch an incredible story. And the story is about a woman who has gone through a, a dark road, a dark journey on her, on her pathway and her craving of approval. And something that you'll hear and something you won't hear is that this is all a process. This is all a process that we walk through together. But watch this incredible story of the transformational power of the grace and love of Jesus Christ in the life of Judy Stoll. When I was young, I, I loved my mom. She was, a, she was just a gorgeous, really talented person, just beautiful. She didn't have any self-worth. She wasn't a Christian and um, had already been left from one husband. This was her second marriage. And um, I think she knew my dad was having affairs, and uh, she just did whatever it took. She was a June Cleaver during the day and a Marilyn Monroe at night. I watched that in her life, and I thought, well, if it worked for her, um, I guess the whole time I would, until I got married, I just thought that's what I would have to do. Eventually, I started getting interested in boys. I started dressing kind of seductively, and I didn't think I could get approval just for who I was. When I was 15, Johnny um, came into my life, he was uh, everything I ever wanted. I knew the minute I met him that I would never let him go. It wasn't even six months. We were having um, sex. And a lot of times, if he would want to take me home early or anything, um, that's, how I, that's how I would keep him. One night I came home after being out late in Johnny's car, and my father was up, he had been drinking, and he called me a slut. I guess if, I, I thought that if anybody could spot one, he could, because of the way his life was. And uh, I never got his approval, I guess. Or maybe I did. I don't know. I thought, maybe I thought women were supposed to be like that. And that that's all they were good for. Because that's the way he treated my mom. And um, that's the picture I had of myself. Eventually, Johnny and I did get married. I remember Johnny um, always saying to me, um, all I want from you is I want you to look good, smell good, and take care of the children. That's all I ever thought about was uh, how I looked. And if he would even come home for lunch and I didn't have my makeup on or my lipstick on or something, he would say, are you sick? Don't you feel good? I couldn't really be myself. I could never be myself. I always had to wear a... Uh, a mask. I didn't feel like I, I could ever just be who I was. I found a Playboy magazine under the mattress. Um, I got really mad, very angry. I felt very rejected, and I knew I had competition. One night, he, I had had a candlelight dinner all set for him. Um, the kids were tucked in bed, and he called and said he wouldn't be home because he had some other things that he had to do. By the time he got home, I was so angry. I went out, and I had an affair. Um, just a one-time affair. I couldn't believe that I had done that. I, was, I came home, and I told him, um, hoping that he would show some kind of concern, but he didn't. He just he let me know that he really didn't care. About three months later, I found out I was pregnant. And then we were really scared. Uh, I knew that it wasn't my husband's baby. I went and had an abortion. And uh, one of the reasons I had the abortion was so that nobody would know what I did, that I had been unfaithful, 
I wanted to hide it. I didn't want my children ever to know that I wasn't the perfect mother, um, a perfect wife. I decided one night that I couldn't live with myself anymore for what I'd done. So I was standing in the bathroom and considering taking my life and the phone rang at three in the morning. It was my twin sister. What she told me was that an angel woke her up and said to call me because I was in trouble. So I remember hanging up the phone, going in my living room and praying to God, if you're real, please show me. So three weeks later, we went to a Billy Graham crusade. It was like he knew my story. There were 75,000 people there. And the first scripture he quoted was about the adulterous woman. And I remember him saying that Isaiah 118 said that as even though your sins are red as scarlet, that he would wash you as white as wool, that he would forgive you. It was news I never knew. I had no idea that God was like that. I thought God was like my dad, that he was um, angry all the time, and I should be scared of him. I went to the altar and asked Jesus into my heart, because that's what I wanted. I wanted forgiveness. I wanted to, he said I could be made brand new. I remember going home, and I saw myself as a completely different person. I was just totally free to be who I wanted to be. And it wouldn't matter who got mad at me if I, <laughs> if I didn't, you know, act the way they wanted me to act. All that mattered is that what God thought of me, even though I knew mercy and grace from God, I still didn't have that mercy and grace for Johnny. I put a lot of blame on him for my actions. He visited a church that I was attending. And um, again, the evangelist was preaching his story and he got saved. I saw a change in Johnny that was incredible. After the Billy Graham crusade, I found out that I was pregnant. I just couldn't believe that God would allow me, would trust me to be a mom again after what I'd done that he would really trust me. So for the next nine months, I was scared to death. So the day came when I went to the hospital and delivered the baby. And the nurses and the doctors kept looking at me saying, Judy, look at your baby. He's just a beautiful baby boy. And I didn't want to look because of that fear of punishment. And I finally looked at my child, John Dempsey Stoll. And that's when I really saw mercy and grace. I couldn't believe it that God would give me this beautiful baby. He gave me beauty for ashes. I just um, thank God every day. of God. No matter where we go, we're close to the Father's heart. And though we stumble, he will not let us fall. We are the Lord's and he will never forsake his own. We are the sons. We are the daughters of God. i uh-huh. 
And as we saw in Judy's story earlier, it, it takes a while for life change to happen, to break this addiction of approval. And so my hope this morning is that this service has stirred something inside of you that maybe you need to take that step. And whether that step is signing up for a small group, uh, whether that step is going to Alpha, maybe today you just need prayer. And we have a prayer team that would love to talk with you down here and just pray with you. Also have a wonderful celebrate recovery program uh, and there'll be representatives down here today that can pray with you and just give you some steps in that but we know that god approves of you that god loves you and his love does not change and today that's a great starting point for us over the next few weeks we're going to be diving into some different topics in this crave series on addiction and we hope that not only will you come but that you'll bring somebody with you that needs to hear that truth that hope that life-changing message of the gospel. Uh, We love you. We thank you so much for being here today. And we'll see you next week for the second week of our Crave Series.